New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, our time machine travels back to the American Civil War for a look at the toll paid by civilians and by the land itself. If you've been to any of our Civil War battlefields, you can't help but picture them as green, rolling pastures, even if you've seen the black and white pictures where not a single tree or building is standing. We're familiar with the devastation wrought on the bodies of soldiers, but after a century and a half, even those images have become romanticized. In fact, even that theme of a family squabble has obscured the suffering of citizens who found themselves in the path of the rampaging armies. Here to catalog the losses of ordinary citizens who didn't wear Confederate butternut or Union blue, is Dr. Joan Cashin, noted historian and author of War Stuff, The Struggle for Human and Environmental Resources in the American Civil War. Dr. Cashin earned a BA from the American University and a PhD from Harvard. Today, she is a professor of history at The Ohio State University. In addition to her duties as editor of Our Common Affairs, Texts from Women in the Old South. I really envy her students and the way she brings history to life. Dr. Cashin's previous books include A Family Venture, Men and Women on the Southern Frontier, and First Lady of the Confederacy, Verena Davis's Civil War. That book earned the Fletcher Pratt Award from the Civil War Roundtable of New York and was a finalist for three other prizes. You can follow our guest on Twitter at Joan E. Cashin or check out her bio page at OSU. Okay, as the sound of boots marching our way draws closer in the distance, bringing with them soldiers hungry for our stores of food, timber, and farm animals, let's join Joan Cashin and chat about war stuff. I'm joined on the line by Dr. Joan Cashin, author of War Stuff, The Struggle for Human and Environmental Resources in the American Civil War. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with the History Author Show. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I was delighted to read this book. I got the paperback, so I picked it up and I read a bunch of Civil War books and a bunch more come across my desk that don't hook me in. It seems like it's something that's been retold and I always want to 
give my listeners, just like you want to give your readers and give your students a new view of what is happening in the past that they may find interesting. And when I saw the title War Stuff, and then I saw that you're a professor of history at The Ohio State University, and I saw your resume, I said, that's really deceptive in its simplicity. And you'll tell me in a moment if I read too much into it. But the word stuff, it encompasses everything you have. It encompasses mm-hmm. your what you put in one of those moving vans, right? When you, mm-hmm. you go away to college, you move to a new house. There's <laughs> that George Carlin bit, right? Where he talks about stuff and you, you have an apartment, then you have more stuff and you buy a house and you keep expanding it because you need more stuff. Right, and right. that whole notion. And I thought that sounds so wonderfully casual to the ear. Mm-hmm. And it looks like that on the cover. It's just stuff. And it also means what's happening to us. Mm-hmm. It's not the kind of on-the-nose specific specific scientific term that we might expect from a history professor. (laughs) What's the story behind that title? And does it intentionally aim to cast that wide net and catch readers that aren't just academics? Thanks. That's a great question. And yes, I'll answer the second question first. It is intended to try to reach uh, people inside and uh, outside of academia, the, the general reader because I know there, there are lots of people who are interested in the war. But I have to give credit where credit is due. I came across the word stuff used in this way in a letter by a northern soldier. Hmm. And he mentioned in passing, you know, the stuff of war, the stuff that we need to fight this war. So the idea popped into my head, yes, war stuff. Hmm. <laughs> that is a apt statement. That's a true statement. You know, people need all kinds of resources to fight a war. So that that's how I got the inspiration for the title. And I would never imagine that it was even something that they would say. I don't know why. It's not a particularly modern word. It's not like no. computer or anything. But <laughs> when you're reading their letters, that's the great thing. They're not intending you to read it or me to read it, right? We're, we're, mm-hmm. we're reading their mail. We're peeking in there and seeing what <laughs> their everyday concerns are. Right. We're, we're reading their mail, their diaries, their memoirs. The newspapers, the military correspondence. I mean, that's one of the great things about studying the Civil War is that the documentation is so enormous. You know, there's so many manuscripts out there. But I I started thinking about this project a long time ago when I was working on other books and essays. I kept coming across these references to soldiers and civilians getting into these intense struggles over material resources, over things like food timber, uh, the built environment, the housing, you know, what we would broadly call uh, habitat. And and I would take notes on it and put it aside. And then about 10 years ago, I realized that there really was a book to be written here, you know, that this was a part of the war that had not really been covered by other scholars. So I argue that just as the two armies square off against each other, there's also a parallel struggle going on between armies and civilians. And I found out that both armies tend to take what they need or what they think they need from civilians. They assert that from the very beginning of the war. And the phrase they use is military necessity. Mm-hmm. Now that, that phrase I came across over and over again. Both armies use that phrase. And what it means is that armies have the right to take whatever resources are necessary for their own survival. It occurs to me as you're speaking about it and how the land would have looked after these soldiers descend on it like locusts is 
so much different from today if we go to, say, Gettysburg mm -hmm. and we, you know, there's rolling hills and there's trees that have been there since the battle or are brand new because they've been blown apart, the old ones. It's a beautiful park. That's why they call it a park, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't, the, the bodies are not lined up on the ground anymore. And when we think of something romantic like, should we bury them by state, the, the famous line, and no, divide them up. I've had enough of states' rights, just bury everybody together. <laughs> it sounds romantic, but we're not, we're not stepping over the bodies. We're not seeing the ground torn up like mm -hmm. I thought of Flanders Fields as I was reading mm -hmm. war stuff. I thought of the poem and about how the poppies come where the land has been blown apart. And we today can't see those scars on the earth, although they, they linger there. And it was uh, it was something to me that nobody thought to write about it before. And I start flipping through the book, as I said, and I say, this is really interesting. And to focus on the civilian perspective of it, mm -hmm. there's a lot of scholarship that, that you mentioned out there about the slave experience mm -hmm. and about human beings being held in bondage, but not the civilian eye. For instance, you mentioned in War Stuff that people forget that 40%, I think, is the number you use of the white civilian population in the Confederate states didn't want to secede. They were loyal mm -hmm. to the Union. And then mm -hmm. how that gets them targeted and, and picked upon. So that that's your focus here. It's not a book that focuses on that theater of the war, so to speak, in scholarship. Exactly. As you say, I agree completely that the slave experience is very important, obviously, to the history of the war. Emancipation is one of the great accomplishments of the war. But scholars have already done a good deal of research on the relationship between slaves, ex-slaves, uh, and the armies. There's a scholarship that goes back decades on that subject, and, and uh, I've assigned that many times in my classes. I've cited it in my own work off and on for a long time. But the gap in the scholarship was about white civilians, and the policies are different. The armies actually perceive slaves as contraband of war. That was a phrase that a Union general uh, coined early on in the war, and most people start to adopt that. So the soldiers in both armies see white civilians in a different fashion, and uh, also, white civilians have more resources. Yeah, more to lose. <laughs> you know, they have more food, they have more timber, the built environment is different. If a big, spacious house on a hilltop seems perfect to take over for, say, uh, a general's headquarters or to turn it into a military hospital or whatever, it's almost always the case that those great big houses are owned by white people. <laughs> So that's how I decided that I would zero in on the struggle between the two armies and white civilians. Although slaves do appear in my book off and on, they often witness these events. They are occasionally taken as hostages on rare occasions by both armies, although most of the hostages are white people. I've got a whole chapter on people, you know, how white people were perceived and exploited and also allied with the armies. But this was a part of the story that had not really been told. And environmental history as a field, which is full of wonderful scholarship, has also produced very little scholarship on the environmental history of the war. A lot of those books and essays concentrate on the modern period, or they concentrate on European history. So there was another blank spot, shall we say, in the field of environmental history, although Lisa Brady did a wonderful book that came out about seven years ago 
It's called War Upon the Land. And she talks about the federal army and only the federal army. My book talks about both armies. And one of the things that honestly surprised me when I was researching it was that both armies behave in ways that are very similar. They take whatever they need. It's something you write in war stuff, and I quoted it here. You say, as soon as the war started, Union troops began acting on the concept of military necessity when it came to taking wood. And you mentioned that the Confederates, uh, and on this at least, they both agreed, both sides agreed. It was not one of the causes of the war that they had first <laughs> claimed to whatever it was you had. So right. they decide they're going to go. And if you're a quartermaster and you're supplying a mid-19th century army, something I got mm-hmm. from war stuff is, You were so close to the land for what you needed. I mean, it wasn't like you were going to need to go to Radio Shack and get some computer chips. (laughs) There was so much of what you needed would be right there that you could just go into a house and get it, whereas you're not going to walk into somebody's house and take an F-16 or a tank or Mm -hmm. Kevlar or anything like that today to fight a war. If you're that quartermaster in the mid-19th century, the requirements are so different. You're going to need, I said, wood uh, when I was quoting you, but Mm -hmm. that means whole forest. That doesn't just mean, hey, I'm going to go rip up your white picket fence. That means everything that you have. And what I don't need, by the way, I'm not going to leave for you. I'm going to burn it down so the other guys don't get it. Yes, that's exactly right. I found there was a lot of deforestation because these are big armies. Their material needs are enormous. The Union Army gets bigger as the war unfolds. The Confederate Army gets smaller, obviously. And that's one reason that the Confederacy loses the war. (laughs) But both of those armies we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people, and they need timber. They need wood to build their winter quarters. They need wood to stoke their campfires. They use wood to build plank roads. They use wood to build bridges. If there is no bridge nearby or if there's a bridge that's not adequate to accommodate an entire regiment that needs to cross a river at a particular place. So what that means is that they head out into the countryside seeking timber. Now, if they come across fences, they will often disassemble the fences because it's faster and easier. You know, it's a lot easier just to take apart a wooden fence than it is to chop down a tree. (laughs) You know, chopping down a tree is hard physical labor. Yeah, it takes time. So the fences will often disappear first, and then squads of men will go out with axes and start chopping down trees and they take down entire forests. I mean, there are these amazing accounts of the landscape in northern Virginia where there was so much hard fighting for much of the war. And by 1863, 1864, there are places in Virginia where the landscape looks like the surface of the moon. Nothing left. (laughs) You know, every tree is gone. Every tree, every house, you know, entire villages have disappeared. So what that means when you have deforestation on a massive scale and you have rain, (laughs) that means that the result is oceans of mud, you know, M-U-D mud. (laughs) Yeah, and then they need more wood to get through it, to lay down for a plank road. Exactly, exactly. It's a classic vicious cycle because the mud necessitates the use for yet more wood. You know, they need more wood for plank roads. They need more woods to try to get horses and men and wagons across the landscape. So soldiers in both armies talk about this, that these phenomenal mud baths 
mud holes that develop, and, and some of them are quite big. They swallow up men. Yes. You know, there are soldiers who disappear, horses, vehicles, wagons. And the other thing is that mud is a perfect vector for all kinds of disease. You know, serious disease, yeah. <laughs> you know, smallpox and typhoid and anthrax and all kinds of illnesses that can be deadly even now, but were very often fatal to soldiers in the 19th century. So there, there are all these unforeseen consequences. And one thing that I discovered is that uh, the men in both armies, uh, the officers and the men in the ranks, are often focused on short-term goals. You know, they, they need to build a bridge right now. <laughs> so they might take down a couple of hundred trees on both sides of the river, and, and many of them don't seem to think ahead about what this will mean in six months or a year or two years. You know, they're, they're completely focused on their own survival, which is, of course, natural in any war. And they're focused on their immediate needs. So what I discovered is that most soldiers and most officers are not thinking ahead about the consequences for the future. They're not thinking about what all this might mean in six months or a year. They're thinking about today, you know, what they need right now. If they need timber to build a bridge so a regiment can cross a river somewhere, then they're going to take down every fence and all the timber until they have what they need. <laughs> and I also found that, that even if there are not that many soldiers who are thinking about the long-term consequences, I did find some men in both armies who are thinking about the ethics of all this, the morality of it, or what they might deem to be the immorality now, there, there are men in both armies who are very uneasy about all this, about this massive confiscation of material resources from civilians. And they say this in their writings. They say this in their memoirs. They say it during the war itself, you know, letters home to the family. They say that this just doesn't seem right. You know, it just doesn't seem right to be taking all this property. And, of course, the people that they're taking it from are often women and children because so many white men are in the military. And, and there are also people in the landscape with different political opinions. A few minutes ago, you mentioned the fact that a significant number of white men in 1860 voted against secession. And that is certainly true. And then when the war breaks out, approximately 100,000 white men from the Confederate States serve in the Union Army, <laughs> which, which reveals a very deep opposition to the Confederacy. And you know, if they're willing to put on a uniform and risk their lives to aid the Union and defeat the Confederacy, that means that these are people who have very deep convictions. And the term for white Southerners who are pro-Union is Unionist. Union, uh, with the suffix I-S-T on the end, that, that was a word that people used in the 1860s. It's a word that historians still use today. So federal troops early on in the war will try to spare those Unionist civilians when they figure out who they are. You know, they'll try to avoid taking their food if they can do that. And, of course, Confederates are fully aware 
of the existence of these people. And they are very happy to take all their food. It's the opposite. <laughs> you know, they're, they're trying to protect pro-Confederate white civilians and harm pro-Union white civilians. But I found that as the, as the war kept unfolding and the material needs of these armies got bigger and bigger and bigger, that those kinds of political distinctions start to fade out so that Union troops will take timber or food or housing from pro-Union white Southerners. And Confederates will do the same for pro-Confederate white Southerners. So what it means is that sometimes these very bitter confrontations will take place. A civilian will say to a soldier in the gray uniform, you know, how can you do this to us? You know, my son is in the army with you. Or, you know, my husband died last year at Shiloh. How can you do this? And the response comes back military necessity and white southern civilians who are are pro-union will say the same thing you know there's the same kind of confrontation with northern troops and the response is the same military necessity when you mentioned about the letters and that they talk about it so casually you write this throughout war stuff Mm -hmm. and you make some keen observations that i enjoyed as somebody who obviously likes words and, and pays close attention You note that Private Carlton McCarthy used the passive voice to depict rebel Mm -hmm. troops cutting timber. And one of the illustrations is a spot called Roasted Ditch in North Carolina, (laughs) which typifies this casual nature of stripping the land. And another point, you were talking there about devastation. I think there's a picture of a, I'm picturing a chimney, Mm -hmm. one of the pages of the book. And Mm -hmm. that's it. That's Mm -hmm. the only thing standing in in this town. And you ask, Mm -hmm. did nobody recognize a long-term impact, especially since since unlike a foreign war, these armies are salting the earth of their own farms and towns as they rampage through, literally in the case of what we know about runoff, and they mm-hmm. would have known that at the time. I mean, think about when you have cinders in a fireplace, how that stinks, how acrid it is, and you, you can't grow anything in that. So it's even worse than just the fact mm-hmm. that they're taking the trees and they take property and they take food and they slaughter animals wholesale if they can't eat them. But they're really damaging the ecosystem and rivers, and eventually you're going to have to have some kind of, one way or the other, reconstruct the land, whoever wins. And yet nobody seems to take that moment. Mm -hmm. They seem to think, as you write, timber was inexhaustible, that all these things would just come back. And they were so focused on the moment Mm -hmm. that when they write those letters, let's talk about it in euphemisms. Let's say things in the Mm -hmm. passive voice like, oh, this just happened. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just happen. They're doing it. And when it's all over, the infrastructure in the region is more or less ruined. You know, entire villages have disappeared. The housing stock has been seriously damaged. Deforestation on a massive scale. Also, hunger, serious hunger, even starvation. And the way that the federal government reacts to this is that there are a few measures to help the hungry, for example. The media reports in the early years right after the war are describing people who are at the brink of starvation. So there are some federal measures to give out food to the hungry. But for the most part, it's a hands-off approach. There's no Marshall Plan for the post-Civil War South. There's no sustained effort to try to rebuild and to try to bring the region back. So what it means is that it takes the timber, takes the forest about 20 years to recover. 
And that's an effort that is managed by local farmers, you know, local people, and by nature itself, you know, just spreading the spores and seeds across the landscape. And it takes the agricultural economy about a generation to recover. It's not really until the late 19th century that the food supply is about the same as it was in 1860. And the same with rebuilding structures like homes, churches, libraries, and so on. You know, it's, it's left up to individuals, it's left up to communities, and it takes a long time. I mean, it's a process that, that spreads out over about 20 or 30 years. And one thing that I argue in the book is that right after the war ends, that first year or so, there are white Southerners who will admit that both armies did this. <laughs> you know, that the Confederate Army and the Union Army took resources, harmed civilians. But then that moment passes rather quickly, and the lost cause mentality gets created, this series of false assumptions, fantasies, really, about what all this was about. So one fantasy that's very powerful and took deep root in American memory, not just for the South, but for the whole country, is that all white Southerners supported secession. They did not. All white Southerners supported the Confederacy. They did not. <laughs> and another related fantasy is that if there was misconduct by an army during the war, then it was always the federal army. You know, it was those damn Yankees, as so many people said in the 19th century and through the 20th century and right down to the present, you know, that it was those evil, conniving, thieving Yankees. But the historical evidence shows clearly during the war that it was both armies. And also right after the war, lots of civilians are willing to admit that. But then that moment passes and this whole set of false assumptions is created and the ex-Confederate leadership, of course, is trying to shape the memory. You know, they're very self-conscious about that. They understood that it's very important to have a hand in how the war is remembered. And they turn out to be very good at that cultural project. <laughs> you know, they're much better at that than they were at actually fighting a war. Yeah. So they create this lost cause mythology, and it has turned out to be very persistent. It's lasted a very long time especially since they're the ones taking it, you would think that you wouldn't forget the color of the uniform of the people that that stole mm -hmm. your land or you know, ended up burning your crops or what have you, mm -hmm. and yet they managed to hush those people up. It reminded me, you mentioned community, you mentioned a few things there about it and about how that's mm -hmm. who it was left to and that there was no Marshall Plan, which made me think they're devastated at this point. The Marshall Plan is after mm -hmm. World War II, of course. The United States is flushed with money. It's the one country that's not been touched by the ravages of war and on its home soil. So, you know, Pearl Harbor right. even is a territory at that point. That's not a problem. We certainly had made up the ships by then. But we don't have the right. money to fulfill the line from Lincoln's second inaugural address, all this high-minded language about to care for him who have shall borne the battle and his widow and his orphan. There's just not the resources, especially we get a, a depression then. And you can't even go out and pick an apple because the apple orchards have been <laughs> hacked down in, in how I'm viewing it here after reading war stuff. They mm -hmm. all just assumed, you, in fact, you write that in war stuff, most soldiers in both armies seem to have assumed that everyone cared about the war, but some people did not care. Mm -hmm. 
with the benefit of hindsight, I wanted to ask what advice you would give to those people who we might today describe as undecided voters, North or South, who they didn't they didn't have an opinion, they didn't have a dog in the fight. If they were in the South, maybe they didn't even own slaves. They, they didn't they didn't think one way or the other about it. They'd maybe never seen a person that was held in slavery. They just wanted to stay out of the path of the war and stay safe until the end. Is there any way that they could have made this suffering easier on themselves? Or was it just however the ball rolled, uh, you describe it later, the armies, as if it was like a machine, that it was Mm -hmm. a machine with no driver that was just going to roll over them no matter what they did, and they couldn't protect Mm -hmm. themselves or their families? That's a good question. Well, in general, for any time period in American history, I think people should vote. (laughs) I think they should always vote. They should always exercise the suffrage because people have struggled so hard to get the vote. And in this key election in 1860, of course, only white men can vote. You know, the suffrage was much smaller than it is now. But there are always people in every generation who are apolitical, who just want to be left alone. So soldiers in both armies had occasional encounters with those civilians, and they are flabbergasted when they meet these people. Civilians who are just focused on their own immediate concerns, who are not interested in the wider world. Soldiers in both armies talk about their encounters with these apolitical civilians, with the neutral, the uninterested, the disengaged. And they're just flabbergasted. They're astonished to meet people who are concerned only with their immediate issues, their immediate needs. They are not interested in what's going on in the big wide world out there. One civilian even told a soldier that he had not lost a moment's sleep over the war since it started. (laughs) You know, those people are out there in every generation. And I think historians have kind of forgotten about these people or just overlooked them. And I tried to bring them back into the narrative in War Stuff because they are part of this complex pattern of interactions between soldiers and civilians. And I think what it also meant is armies realized that there are some civilians they're never going to be able to win over. You know, there's some civilians who are immediately disaffected and uninterested, and they're never going to be able to win those people over to their own side. You're enjoying my enlightening conversation with Dr. Joan Cashin about her book, War Stuff, The Struggle for Human and Environmental Resources in the American Civil War. Stephen Mintz at the University of Texas, Austin, writes of War Stuff, quote, In this brilliant examination of the intimate connections between military and environmental history, one of the preeminent historians of the Civil War era offers strikingly original insights into how the struggle for resources and logistical challenges shaped military tactics, civilian morale, class, and race relations, and the future of the South's economy. The phrase that jumps out at me there is strikingly original insights. I've interviewed authors who've discovered new diaries or unpublished letters, but in your case, War Stuff takes a look at the data that was out there from a new angle. Maybe people feel that going and 
taking a bunch of trees wasn't exciting or thievery, something we want to look away from, right? This is, we have no problem looking at the Japanese, say, going into Nanking or, or the Germans in World War II or the French, or, but this is close to home, literally, in many cases, people are, who are going to be, uh, or Americans live in these lands. They're, they want to look at maybe the picture of great grandpa there and his uniform on one way or the other and think, well, he was one of the good ones. He didn't, he didn't do anything bad. And we, we look away from mm-hmm. it. Why is it that in 150 years, nobody has taken this perspective of the war, especially since, as you write in war stuff, people would, quote, spend the next several decades rebuilding their lives and their land? That's another great question. I think that there's an assumption among some professional historians, not all, of course, but but some people, that nothing really terrible has ever happened in the United States that the U.S. is different, it's special, it's not a nation among nations, it's set apart from a lot of the tragedy and suffering that has shown up in so many other countries over human history. And I think that it's better to look these things in the face. The documentation is overwhelming that these things were going on. One of the most useful sources I found was actually the collection of official military correspondence. The U.S. government published it after the war. It's a massive collection of letters and field reports and so on. It's called The Official Records of the War of the Rebellion. Historians refer to it as the OR. That's our shorthand. And the OR is a gold mine. If you're interested in civilian life or interactions between soldiers and civilians. And I found all kinds of great stuff, pardon the pun. (laughs) I found all kinds of great stuff in the OR from 1861 all the way up to the conclusion of the war in 1865. So the evidence is overwhelming. The historical documentation is very rich and very extensive. So I think it's better just to look these things in the face. Yeah, and go back to the primary sources, which I like, rather than we have even the mm-hmm. Ken Burns documentary, and I set it up another time, and I said it may sound like heresy to people, but in order to tell the story of this great reconciliation, we have to ignore some things because human relationships are never that tidy. Mm-hmm. If we take a relationship between any two people, much less something as complex as a war, mm-hmm. it's never going to be cut and dry and then everybody walks off into the sunset. But that's what we've picked up from books for such a long time and from movies eventually. And mm-hmm. we, we like that story. We like to say, well, we did it right. And it makes us feel really good about it. Yet these Union troops under Lincoln weren't held to some special standard. You know better than I do the opinion of Lincoln at the time and the anger and the the hatred towards him, as one Southerner you quote in War Stuff describes it. They were maybe giving a receipt. You'd be lucky if you got a receipt for what they took. Often they would just take it on either side, one or the other. So there's not that Mm -hmm. black and white as black and white as we know today holding human beings in bondage was, that doesn't extend to every single thing that anybody Mm -hmm. in blue or anyone in gray ever did. If you were lucky enough to have gotten a receipt for something that somebody took from you, that some army came as they passed through, much less if you didn't have one. Mm -hmm. Tell us the story. What what could you expect if you show up in Washington and say, hey, I have this receipt scrawled here, and uh, you owe me, or the government Mm -hmm. owes me several thousand dollars? Yeah, that's a series of profound insights. A few minutes ago, you mentioned Lincoln, and and you also mentioned slavery. 
course, one of the things that makes Lincoln's overall task so difficult is that four of the slave states remained in the Union, Maryland, Delaware, Kentucky, and Missouri. So that's one reason why he proceeds carefully and methodically on the issue of emancipation. It really frustrated abolitionists. They were quite impatient with him the first year or so of the war because they expected him to do something, you know, make a big, grand executive order regarding emancipation. But Lincoln couldn't really do that. He was very much concerned that it might trigger the secession of some of those states, especially Maryland, which was right next door. And Maryland had an active secessionist movement in 1860-61. And Lincoln actually had to arrest some of those people and put them in prison for a while to keep them from engineering Maryland right out of the Union. Both Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis are several steps removed from military policy at this level. You know, the interactions between soldiers and civilians, it's not really something that either one of them spend much time on. You know, they both accept the notion of military necessity, and they hope that things will be done properly and there won't be any needless suffering. But both of those figures are concerned with big questions about campaign strategy with Lincoln, of course, emancipation. Jefferson Davis is concerned about trying to get diplomatic recognition out of England, although he went about it in a very bumbling kind of way. But they're both concerned with these big-scale issues, and neither one of them spend that much time on what's going on at the ground level. So it's really up to the individual commanders And some of them are not all that interested either. Some of them just accept the fact that they can't control all the men in the regiment. And that's unfortunate, but that's just the way it is. Some of them try off and on repeatedly to crack down, to discipline troops, to make sure that, you know, they at least go through a court-martial, even if they're not punished or, or convicted. But there's a lot of leeway for the average private in the ranks. One of the men that I quoted in the book said that he had never felt so free from restraint until he joined the army. Oh, great. (laughs) (laughs) You know, which is not really what you think of today when you think of joining the military. I've never been in the military myself, but I have a number of family members who've who've served or are still serving right now. And the, the world of the military today is very different. It just doesn't allow people at the ground level to have a whole lot of latitude or autonomy. But the 19th century is a different universe. It's just a a whole different world. That's why we join, people that do join, or one of the things we think of, certainly, and it's a trope now, you know, a cliche, this, you're not behaving well, little Johnny, I'm going to send you off to military school, we'll get some discipline in you, right? Or people who mm-hmm. still push mm-hmm. mandatory national service, uh, mandatory draft. The idea is that you'll get some discipline, you'll learn to make your own bed and all these things. Yep. And the idea of people joining because they thought that this would be a great chance to just be free seems impossible when you when you think about it. And mm-hmm. you pointed out, especially when they're able to go and just take what they what they need on any pretext and pay no punishment for it. You really feel for these people that are in their wake on both sides who mm-hmm. do want to just stay out of the way and they suffer. And as you said, it's not something we picture happening in towns and cities and states that we live mm-hmm. in today, but it certainly did. 
Yes, and I think in the the modern military, the consequences are much more serious if people do not follow orders. The chain of command is much tighter, much more stringent. Over and over again, I found privates who were defiant, you know, who would just ignore a major or a captain who said, you cannot leave camp to go foraging. Well, that night, three or four fellows, you know, all good friends would leave together. They would leave anyway. And and sometimes, you know, mocking the officers that they had outwitted. So I think that that sort of behavior would result in serious discipline today. I mean, the whole world is just a different universe in terms of our means of communication and transportation and so on. And the military today, of course, has many more techniques whereby they can keep an eye on the troops, you know, that they can observe men and their behavior in a way that people in the 1860s would never have imagined. Especially when they just stick a gun in your hand and they're fighting for this idea of community. I read war stuff and I recalled my grade school history teacher explaining the title of Gone with the Wind and what it meant to people in mm-hmm. the South at the time after the war that their Southern way of life was just gone. And it always stuck with me. Mm-hmm. And then here I'm reading war stuff many years later <laughs> and I'm seeing words like community and collective that you describe it with. It's not just mint juleps and it's not just the abuse that we associate with slavery It's the nostalgia that not only does give rise or give fertile ground as much as the actual ground has been poisoned to this noble lost cause idea that takes place, this myth of the Mm -hmm. noble lost cause, but it makes them fight almost to the death. It makes them suffer all of this privation, all of this terrible stealing and all of this having your house destroyed because – People are saying they want to fight, and they're not going to give up. They're going to fight for the man next to them. You just mentioned about going foraging with with friends and and that kind of thing. It Really, they want to defend that because they're acting so communally, which is not something I would have thought of when I thought of the antebellum South. I didn't think of this sense of community you describe, Mm -hmm. much less the starvation that they suffered. Mm -hmm. You say the year 1862 sees the Confederate draft, which here we go. These are not professional Mm -hmm. soldiers. They're shoving a gun in your hand. You might not even get a uniform if you're in a place like Georgia, you know, just stick you out there and shrinking land available for supplies as that noose tightens around the seceded states. With food at such a premium, you think, okay, at this point, I'm reading war stuff. I'm expecting there to be a turn where people start trying to conserve food, where we have that quartermaster crack a whip a little bit and start telling guys, hey, we got we to gotta make sure we only eat what we need. And yet I'm reading through war stuff. You tell me <laughs> both armies wasted food of all types. And you write, if the armies resembled machines, as I mentioned before, they were machines with no drivers. And to me, <laughs> wasting something as basic as food. I mean, yeah. I guess they never heard that an army marches on its stomach. I would have thought that that mm-hmm. went back to Alexander the Great or something. Of course, he was Greek and all we ever think about is food and making sure people are fed. So maybe the these armies didn't get that message. Who or what bears the responsibility for all that needless suffering? Or was it just that, unlike Lincoln having that broader view and so many things to do, they just had to live through that day and nobody really thought about tomorrow? Well, the, the ultimate responsibility goes to the Confederate leadership. You know, the secessionists who engineered the breakup of the country in 1860-61, I mean, they bear the ultimate responsibility 
although they were all predicting a quick war. You know, if there was a war, they said it'll be fast, easy, Yankees will run away, it'll all be over in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Well, it didn't turn out that way. <laughs> and secession itself is just a grotesque overreaction to losing an election. You know, they, they lost the election. Lincoln wins. Lincoln is the first anti-slavery president in American history. But many of the slave states start leaving the Union before Lincoln even takes office, before he even gets to Washington. South Carolina secedes in December of 1860, and he doesn't take the oath of office until March. So there's something irrational about the secession movement. It's driven by fear, by, by fear of what Lincoln might do. And Stephen Douglas of Illinois, who had known Lincoln for several decades and was his political rival but also respected Lincoln, he said after the election, he said, let's just see what he does. Let's just see what happens when Lincoln takes office and then we can proceed from there. And if the slave states are unhappy with what Lincoln does, he's up for re-election in 1864. You know, that, that's a rational response. But there's, there's this drumbeat, and the secessionists are very good at stirring up fear of what might happen. You know, they're predicting we'll, we'll have a catastrophe if Lincoln wins the election. But then when the war breaks out, you know, they turn on a dime and they say, oh, this will be a cakewalk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this will be a quick, easy victory. So they're very good at manipulating public opinion and manipulating public emotion, although they can never persuade everybody. You know, there's always that hard core of pro-union white Southerners who, who never get on board. They don't vote for secession and they will not serve in the Confederate Army. I wanted to mention General William Tecumseh Sherman of the Union ah, yes. for his March to the Sea, because that's mm -hmm. a story that you'd think he was the only guy that upended a teacup or his army was the only ones who ever did anything. And because, of course, he calls it the March to the Sea and he says, I'm going to make Georgia howl. And he has mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. quote that we still hear today about how war is hell and there's no use for finding it. The crueler it is, the faster it'll be over and, and all that sort of thing. And plus, he has red mm -hmm. hair and people are naturally prejudiced against the red hair they think you're just crazy <laughs> when you're out there and he really he, he played it up <laughs> he played it up my wife is, is a redhead oh, so I see. hopefully uh you know yeah I, I know she gets picked on not by me of course i, I think she's adorable <laughs> but <laughs> what role did that play or how did that get started and what do you think people will find surprising here in war stuff where it gets pointed out to them that hey sorry to tell you but mm -hmm. th this was happening on all sides so your idea of making mm -hmm. the man called uncle billy the only bad guy in the war is is really off the mark yeah i'm so glad you brought up his name <laughs> I, I give a qualified defense of sherman i argue that the behavior of sherman's army during the march to the sea in 1864 is not that unusual there were other armies who behaved in much the same way that that kind of behavior had been going on since 1861 I think one reason that has gotten so much publicity is that it happened right after Lincoln was reelected in 1864, and it happened in a relatively short span of time. It happened in a particular place, and also because Sherman cut off contact. You know, there, there was no way to reach him. Public curiosity started to uh, ratchet up when it when it was happening. 
But Sherman is singled out and demonized in ways that are not quite fair. There were other officers in the Union Army who did similar things, and there were officers in the Confederate Army who did similar things. In fact, a white woman in Georgia said in 1864 that Confederate General Wheeler and his army behaved much the same way that Sherman and his army had conducted themselves. So I give a a qualified defense for Sherman. Very quickly, you know, during the war and after, he was selected as this demon figure, but that's not really accurate. And General Wheeler ends up going, by the way, to command the U.S. troops in Cuba Uh in 1898. Uh So obviously they knew, they knew what everybody Mm -hmm. was up to, but some people have better PR than others. And in the case of Sherman, he he didn't get the good PR. (laughs) And also I think it has to stick in your craw when they write things like, I am pleased to present to you, Mr. President, the city of Savannah as a Christmas gift. I mean, if that's your city and it, that has to really tick you off you know, to, to talk about it so casually. But that's also part of the psychological warfare that he had going mm-hmm. on. So that was part of it. He wanted, he wanted to end the war. He didn't wake up one day and decide to go on a rampage. Right. I also wanted to ask you about the role of women because mm-hmm. you talk about in war stuff how women break traditional roles to serve as spies and do things like mm-hmm. that. And in fact, I talked about the Southern way of life being gone like the wind. (laughs) One of those figures is Marion McKenzie. Mm -hmm. And I thought it's not just that they broke those roles. We're familiar with Rosie the Riveter and women who pitched in to go back to talking about World War II, but their roles were obliterated. They were gone because, hey, no house, no housekeeper, no Mm -hmm. children off fighting war, no no food to prepare because they've been stolen by a rampaging army or all your foodstuffs have been have been taken away. You you really can't do it. And you're not just going to sit around. You want to you want to do your bit. You have to do something and you can't stay out of the way. So explain briefly how women like Mackenzie adapted, because she was a fascinating mm-hmm. story. How do they adapt as they see their the destruction of their homes, farms, animals, family, jobs, <laughs> their role in society, their very role of who they are when they wake up in the morning? How do they adapt to that? Well, that's another good question. Women in both regions before the war are supposed to be apolitical. You know, they don't vote. And they're not supposed to show much concern or interest in politics in general. And when the war begins, some white Southern women are politicized, you know, whichever side they support. Some of them are eager to help the Union Army or eager to help the Confederate Army. They deliver messages. They work as spies. They work as laundresses. They work as cooks. They are doing what they can. Sometimes even at the very beginning of the war, they will be happy to give a free meal to an officer passing through. But as I said earlier, as the war goes on, women begin to realize that the very existence of both of these armies can pose a threat to them. You know, no matter how enthusiastic they might have been about secession in 1860, and and there are some women, of course, who who support secession. Nonetheless, if there are several thousand rebel troops in your county, that will threaten all the produce you have in your barn and your entire orchard, and maybe your home might be taken over. So what happens is that women get drawn into these struggles with the armies, convention before the war was that women are not only apolitical, they're also physically weak. 
They're mild, even timid. They can't really fend for themselves in the world because men have to be there to protect them and defend them and look after them. Well, during the war, there are some women who completely break <laughs> with those antebellum attitudes, and they take dramatic measures to defend themselves and their resources and their families. I found uh, women who pulled guns on soldiers. I found a woman who threatened a soldier with an axe. There were cases where soldiers suspected that women might have tried to poison them. You know, they stopped at a log cabin and asked for something to drink. And then not too long afterwards, they were rolling around on the ground in agony, crying out that somebody had poisoned them. So women get politicized in a way that involves their very survival, you know, that they have to, they feel they have to do things that are just extraordinary to survive and to protect what they care about. But the irony is, I didn't really get to talk about this a lot in the book, but after the war, all that is pretty quickly forgotten. <laughs> so the notion that some reformers said in the North and occasionally in the South that the war proved that women should be allowed to vote, that idea never pans out. And the, the women's suffrage bills, the women's suffrage amendments, they don't succeed until well into the 20th century. But you mentioned Marianne McKenzie. I've discovered quite a few Readers are fascinated by her. She was arrested by a, a U.S. provost marshal in Wheeling, West Virginia. She was arrested for espionage, and she was dressed in a Yankee uniform. But she said that she had served in both armies. She was arrested for espionage. She had several aliases. And the officer who arrested her, he said that she was physically strong, she was articulate, and she was able to take care of herself. <laughs> So those kinds of women do all kinds of unorthodox things. And we know from research by other historians that probably four to 5,000 women served in the two armies disguised as men, hmm. approximately the same number for a, a total of about 5,000. And you might ask, well, how could they get away with that? That's because they didn't have physical. Huh. That's routine today. Another thing, it's so different. Everything was completely different. So, yeah. so a woman who had an androgynous appearance could pass herself off as a man and get into the military. It's fascinating. <laughs> so many fascinating things in war stuff. I could go on and on, but I want people to read the book. There's plenty more in there that people can read and a lot of those aha or hmm moments in it. <laughs> I have time for one final question. I started the interview complimenting your title, War Stuff, that reaches beyond a university audience. So make your pitch. Why should the scholar, Civil War buff, or maybe just the casual reader who wonders what life was like for a civilian back during the Civil War pick up a copy of War Stuff and dig into it, meet some people like Marion McKenzie? Because it's the first full environmental history of the war, because it's focused on the lived experience of the average person, and because it gives us, in my humble opinion, a whole new way to think about the conflict. Well, Dr. Joan Cashin, author of War Stuff, you quote a Mrs. E.M. Izzard of South Carolina mm -hmm. lamenting that the cost paid was all for nothing, nothing, mm -hmm. nothing, in her words. 
I feel that having good historians like you, having somebody who brings this history to life, reminds us of what these people suffered. It proves that while it was very hard, it wasn't for nothing. We can remember what these people went through. Mm -hmm. And hopefully when it comes our time to vote, you mentioned how important the franchise is or to make policy or just living our own life. We can think maybe beyond just this minute and ask ourselves what we're doing for the future and what we are doing to carry on this legacy and live the live in the country and improve the country that was handed to us after all this suffering right. born of so much strife death disease and damage to the land mm-hmm. itself i really appreciate you coming and discussing the high toll on the land and on civilians paid by that civil war generation thank you i wish you the best of luck with war stuff and i compliment you one last time because <laughs> you really made this perspective of the conflict relatable to 21st century readers Thank you very much, Dean. I really appreciate that. I was delighted to be here. It was really fun. Again, the book is War Stuff, The Struggle for Human and Environmental Resources in the American Civil War. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even navigate via the Amazon banner at the top of our homepage the next time you purchase any stuff from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, that banner takes you through to Amazon, and amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. I wish I had a history professor like Dr. Joan Cashin when I was in school. I can't thank her enough for bringing us this first true environmental history of the Civil War It may have been uncomfortable for the Civil War generation to look back on what they had done to the civilians in their own territories, but that doesn't make their suffering any less real. And now, with books like War Stuff, we can right those wrongs and remember those people. You can follow our guest for more insights like these and information on her other books and projects at Joan E. Cashin on Twitter. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean, Instagram at the History Author Show, or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this Civil War installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together... Thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side.
and things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.